This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? BFM 89.9, you're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wang Xiaoning and Chong Jensen. This is WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits you may have missed. It has been a busy week on the international front as we had headlines this week coming out of US and China, the balloon, uh, Ukraine also, as well as Turkey and Syria. But let's start off with a look at what's going on in Ukraine. So in Ukraine, President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine was in Brussels on Thursday to meet up with EU's 27 heads of government, repeating his case for EU membership as he topped off a short tour of key European allies. So the European leader has been pushing for accelerated EU membership for his country. But we think that, not we think, I think it will likely be met with uh, some disappointment because joining the EU normally takes aspiring members more than a decade of work to comply with EU governing standards and the country's rather poor track record with corruption is a constant concern for European policymakers as well. But Mr Zelensky wants to expedite this process partly to maintain a national sense of momentum towards a brighter future for Ukraine. Yeah, I think his whirlwind tour of uh, Europe is on the back of his request, right, for more arms, especially jets. I think he's got what what he wanted with regards to tanks, and now he's moved on to jets because the war in Ukraine is, wow, coming up to its, what, 365 days, right? The anniversary is the 24th of February. One year mark, and no, doesn't seem like abating. In fact, it looks like it's intensifying. So, you know, I think he has gone around his fellow European uh, brethren and asking for more military weapons and I think he's facing a bit of a, a roadblock there actually when it comes to the EU. I think Europe, Britain has been a little bit more welcoming towards him and a little bit more forthcoming when it comes to military aid but less so I think with the, the rest of Europe concerned about whether this would escalate the uh, war there even more. It did take Germany some time before it approved um, passing over their Leopard tanks to the Ukraine front. And I did see headlines that uh, Zelensky's visit to Europe did cause a little bit of um, an upset uh, among certain uh, European leaders. Uh, I think uh, President Zelensky held a dinner meeting with uh, French President Macron as well as uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, uh, who wasn't in the room though was Georgia Maloney, the Prime Minister of Italy, and she was pleased at being excluded apparently. Yeah, she called the hastily organised soiree, I'm quoting Financial Times, inappropriate. Mm. She felt left out. Indeed, indeed. And another thing that's brewing on uh, related to the Ukraine war front is actually what's going to happen at the Paris Olympics 2024. There are talks now of whether it's appropriate to allow Russian and Belarusian athletes to participate. There had been proposals for these athletes to maybe uh, participate under a neutral flag, but that is gaining opposition. I think as many as 40 members have indicated that they would actually boycott the Olympics if Russian and Belarusian athletes were allowed to join join in. Um, so there are talks going on on that to see what would happen. Um, but this is an example of the fallout that happens uh, when war occurs. Okay, what's interesting also with regards to Zelensky's visit to the EU is the question about what do they do with Euro- uh, European assets of sanctioned Russian entities or the Russian state? 
do they then use it for the eventual reconstruction of Ukraine? Because increasingly more questions about what happens when peace comes. There will be an incredible rebuilding effort, right, post-war. And then how is it going to be funded? You know, it's going to cost billions. And the Ukraine economy, I'm sure, is devastated as a result of this war. So where's the funding really going to come from? And I'm sure people think about World War II during the Marshall, Marshall Plan, where Europe was rebuilt. What kind of Marshall Plan or version of it will be made for Ukraine? That is one of the questions, uh, the open-ended questions that remain to be answered. But when we're talking about devastation, uh, this week the huge devastation came in uh, South Turkey and North Syria, where twin earthquakes really rocked uh, parts of both countries. Um, it is winter time at at it in that part of the world, and rescue efforts have been continuing amid freezing temperatures. Uh, I think it's more than seven, almost seventy-two hours since mm. the earthquakes first struck, and I think hope is. Uh, dwindling over whether they'll be able to find survivors uh, since then. Yeah, I think uh, The Guardian's reporting that the death toll now has risen to more than 21,000 and we know with each passing day, with each passing hour, that death toll actually increase. Yeah, well, actually what was quite uh, striking for me is um, Turkey is the world's biggest refugee host country and there are about 3.6 million Syrian refugees that live in the nation following the protracted Syrian civil war and many of these refugees actually live in southeastern Turkey in the area where the earthquake was struck the hardest and the only border crossing where international aid can cross into Syria was also damaged by the earthquake. I think some experts have said the best way to really help some of these uh, people is really by sending cash because cash allows um, um, helping the communities to be actually uh, more adaptable and also infuses money into the economy because things that are bought can be then used uh, more locally. So aid efforts are continuing, but as you mentioned, um, Jensen, it's hard to get aid into um, North Syria at the moment because of that ongoing civil war. If you look over at Turkey, you can see that uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has also been getting a lot of flack for the slow response uh, in some places. A lot of the rescue teams didn't have the right equipment, and a lot of um, I think there's a lot of frustration that uh, help isn't coming quickly enough to those that are affected by this earthquake. Well, so far, 50. 51 countries have already dispatched rescue teams to Turkey. The government says there are 50, about 5,000 over foreign personnel, including, I do believe, two, two groups of Malaysians already there. It's a worldwide effort to really help, I think, you know, because time is of essence. Now, in terms of the damage, right, just to give you an indication of their rebuilding efforts, Fitch rating says that the insurable economic loss could exceed $4 billion, but it's probably hard to estimate, and I'm sure the loss is even more than that because not many buildings were insured. Questions also about the safety standards of these buildings in the first place. Absolutely. There have been a lot of reports of buildings who claimed to be built up to the latest regulations, but uh, they did collapse during the earthquake. So I think there will be a lot of um, investigations and scrutiny in the wake of this. Uh, turning our attention over to what's happening over in the tech space, I think all week there have been headlines about this uh, race picking up between all the tech giants in terms of the kinds of investments they're putting into AI technology. Uh, and overnight, we did see um, some, I guess, uh, mishaps or definitely a boo-boo on Google's side, which lost them, I think, 100 billion US dollars from their stock price. 
Yeah, I think that's quite understandable that the market is worried about this era because Microsoft is hot on the heels of Google, opening up a wait list of Bing plus GPT-4. So there is a glimpse of how this interface will look like. There's this usual search bar, but instead of typing the keywords, we can type in a question and it's more conversational and intuitive way to find answers. So after this, Bing will display the GPT answers first with links to the sources it got, it got the answers from. Then only Bing would show the search results. So this may have an impact on Google search. And just to give you a sense, in Financial 22, Alphabet generated 57% of its revenue from Google search. Oh, okay. But let's take a little step back. How many people are in the race? for this AI technology. So we have Microsoft with ChatGPT. They've put down $10 billion US dollars to push this uh, new excuse me, technology to the forefront. Then now we have... Uh, Google, Google with BARD. With BARD. And then we have Ernie from... Um, uh, Baidu? Baidu. Baidu. Who I else? Think, I think Alibaba said very recently they're coming up with their own uh, AI as well. Okay, so everybody is really keen on this, right? Because it's l like the new forefront of technology. Who is going to re to like emerge the winner? And in the meantime, is this going to you know take our jobs? <laughs> Should we be worried about this? I don't uh, how think, clever is this? Uh, probably not too worried yet because as the uh, debacle with Google Bard shows, uh, AI software of this sort does get things wrong uh, fairly often still i mean the whole the whole reason why google's uh, stock price plummeted was because um i think bard gave out the wrong information regarding what uh, the james webb telescope what what its uh, what its achievements were uh, they definitely gave the wrong information on that okay because the economist does highlight this right they say that the chat box regardless of whichever company is behind it they have to grapple with bias prejudice and misinformation because basically they scan the internet to give you an answer. So if it's rubbish out there, you'll get rubbish and answer back, right? Now, the other thing also is that apparently the answers come off as mansplaining, right? Supremely confident in its answers regardless of the accuracy. That's what the economists say. Oh, to have the confidence of a man yeah. who, is, and you I know, quote who can the say anything they want. I quote uh, economist ChatGP. T already gives answers that Ron DeSantis, Florida governor, would consider unacceptably woke. All right. All right. 9.47 a.m. We're heading into some messages, but we'll come back with more top stories of the week. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. 9.48 a.m. You're listening to The Morning Run with Shazana Shaoning and Jansen. This is WTF or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. Now, just to give you a preview into uh, some uh, dates coming up this weekend, 11th of February, that's the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. And on Monday, the 13th of February, that is World Radio Day. Ooh. And uh, if you have any questions about the inner workings of a business radio station, well, you should tune in to Monday's Breakfast Grill. Why? That's because we're having a super special guest and that super special guest is our very own boss and BFM founder and managing director, Malik Ali. We're going to put him in the hot seat to mark World Radio Day. And because, you know, the morning run is all about the breakfast grill, he too should feel the heat once in a while. Definitely. So help us grill our boss. You know, send us your toughest questions. Send us any burning questions you have and we'll make sure uh, that we have Malik respond on the show. Let's make it a little bit relevant to, I guess, World Radio Day and, you know, 
know, the business of radio and maybe even the editorial direction, uh, we'll have Malik respond to that. Yeah, and you can submit your questions or queries through text or voice ma- voice note or on WhatsApp, which the number is 018-789-8899. Make it burning. Maybe not so much burning that we won't have jobs on Tuesday <laughs> that Malik will still keep us That's around. true. That's true. You know, think of our job security. Thank you very much. But uh, yes, we look forward to your questions and tune in to The Breakfast Grill Monday 13th of February, World Radio Day. Now we are coming back to our weekly roundup of stories. I think if you look at the political front, there were a couple of interesting uh, news headlines that came out. Um, we now know what's happening with Kairi Jamaluddin. KJ is becoming a DJ. He is joining the breakfast crew over at Hot FM. But meanwhile, all those people who still do have political parties, especially with the unity government, they've come together um, at a meeting this week uh, to decide on the direction for the state elections. And I think the consensus is they will be working together for the state elections. Yeah, I think there was a a meeting, the first unity meeting of the new government. And I find it was a bit uh, unusual and probably a bit appalling that they really missed out Muda in this meeting. And I think the explanation coming up from the Prime Minister who said the first meeting is for founding parties of the unity government and ensure that all parties will be roped in, in later. It sounds more like an afterthought and I agree that communication could have been a bit better. So just to note that um, out of all the parties that form the unity government, I think only Muda and KDM were not present at that meeting. Um, and uh, the evening edition actually spoke to uh, Said Sadiq, a Muda president yesterday, and uh, he explained that they didn't have any knowledge of this meeting until they saw media reports. So you can look up the podcast um, uh, to listen to the full conversation that uh, Lynn and Sharmila had with Said Sadiq, his explanation on why uh, this probably wasn't a very uh, diplomatic move on the part of Dato Sri Ibrahim. Not at all. And I expect more fireworks actually to come out from this unity government actually when it comes to seat allocations. That's really the test of whether everybody is getting along, right? Because you're going to have to do some horse trading uh, in terms of giving up seats, taking up some new seats. Uh, Who's going to give way? That's right. And don't forget that uh, Pakatan Harapan and UMNO were on opposing sides for a very long time. So the uh, convention is they contest the same seats. But now that they're all on the same side, like you said, who is um, who's willing to give their seats to another party? Yeah, I mean, what if you're the incumbent? Are you willing to give way to someone else? Or is it automatically assumed that the incumbent will get to keep his seat and run, his or her seat and run for that state election? We don't really know, right? This we is very, know. very untested. And then what happens during campaigning? Foes becoming best BFFs going on the same stage together. And what kind of, you know, be interesting, like, will they have the same campaign issues and the same messaging? Because previously they, they hadn't. Previously no, they it was were very opposing teams, opposition. right? And you can be sure that Perikata National is also gearing up for state elections. Uh, a lot of these states in contest are prime areas of uh, competition. Um, I think they Perikata National is eyeing seats in Selangor. Uh, they managed to make headway in Penang during the federal election. So what will happen at the state level? Uh, can uh, the powers that are there, the parties that are there, DAP, can they still, you know, keep it a stronghold. Yeah, for example, the shocker, one of the biggest shockers at GE15 is Nor Isa losing her permanent 
Pematang Power Seat, which actually has been a family stronghold seat for many, many years, and she lost it to a to a past uh, candidate. So are we going to see surprise losses like this throughout the rest of the six states that are heading into the state elections? A lot at stake, uh, a lot to watch, and it is going to be a referendum of sorts on the current unity government. Um, so yes, we will keep an eye on when that date is going to be. There is still no date for when state elections are to be held, but they must be held before August this year. But do correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, turning our attention to other stories, I think um, even though a lot of us want to put the pandemic behind us, uh, we can definitely see that uh, issues from the pandemic are resurfacing as more investigations and scrutiny um, over decisions that were taken during that time. And uh, the procurement of COVID-19 vaccines is one such issue in the spotlight. Yeah, so Prime Minister Anwar said among some of the irregularities discovered with the multi-billion ringgit purchase of COVID-19 vaccines for the country, they will present a white paper to Parliament from the Health Ministry. Um, I think really this all comes down to accountability, transparency and governance. If something as crucial as a COVID-19 vaccine, which is to save lives, can be controversial and there are allegations that show that certain parties really profited from it, I think this is really a new low for Malaysia Inc. And it's really, really disappointing. Yeah, it is. And uh, what was interesting about Dato Sri Anwar's comments was that he didn't want to name the ministers involved, right? He said that's not really the, the key point about this. But if we rewind and look at it, at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, two ministers were in charge of the COVID-19 matters. And of course, they were the health minister and also then science, technology and innovation minister at that time. Now, one was, of course, Datu Sri Adam Baba and the other one is Kari Jamaluddin. Now, KJ has, of course, come out to deny all these allegations. Uh, he said it was all procured properly and so did, so did Muhyiddin's aide. Muhyiddin, of course, being the Prime Minister at that time. I think it'll be interesting to see what will be revealed, actually. Uh, in terms of the investigation. Indeed, uh, both uh, those ministers were part of UMNO at the time. Um, so I wonder if that also plays into the decision to name or not name people. Uh, but okay, so he, the, I think the, the what Dato Sri Anwar has said is that um, the, the COVID-19 procurement was signed off without the express approval of the Attorney General's chambers. I'm mm. curious about, I'm curious about that detail, you know, and, and if it's them... Uh, are there other parties that should have signed off but didn't? And Was it down to just procedure not being followed right. because everybody wanted to work very quickly, get yeah. things done properly? I mean, not properly, but done as as fast as possible because it was all about saving lives, right? So I think definitely more details on what these irregularities are uh, would be good, I think, just to uh, clear the clear the matter up as well. Um, okay, 9.56am. We do have time for any other news tidbits that uh, people should know. Airport, airport, airport. Uh, let's talk about it because we've got KLIA, which might be rebranded uh, to a new name. And then we might see the resurrection of Subang taking on uh, narrow-bodied jet planes. Are you excited, Jensen? Do you like to fly? I do, but I haven't flown for quite a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Since COVID. I think you're right. <laughs> I really hope if, if you want to rename KLIA, KLIA 2, that it comes with an upgrading as well. Because I really don't want just a rebranding exercise, but facilities are still the same lackluster, broken down. A, a lot of issues with these airports, um, you know, I, I hope they're looking into that as well. Okay, so Anthony Loke has said that the cabinet has agreed to the proposal to rebrand KLIA and KLIA 2 
to KLA Terminal 1 and KLIA Terminal 2. <laughs> so not really that to much of a rebrand, okay, is it? <laughs> so it's to improve their marketability, value and effectiveness. Help me understand how this works. Because well, well, terminal are a lot of extra letters to the name, I suppose. Yes, and it's a bit more mouthy. I kind of still like KLIA, KLIA 2, and next time you might have a KLIA 3. doesn't really matter. Um, why, why do you add this terminal? You know, is it better? Uh, I, I, Does it make the airport better? It better make it better. <laughs> I just, what we need better is aero trains at work, luggage that comes up quickly, toilets that are clean, Immigration, immigration that, that is quick, right? Uh, changing a name isn't going to make much difference, at least to me. So maybe I'm wrong. I'm not sure. We will see what this means and how everything pans out, especially when it comes to the Subang Airport. I really do hope that they conduct the stakeholder engagement needed in order to, I guess, revive Subang Airport the yeah. way they want to. Because traffic there currently is ter- is bad, you know, especially at rush hour. Noise, will that be a, a problem for the residents? Subang Jaya is a very different animal than it was 30, 40 years ago when, right. that, was the, when that was the main international airport for Malaysia. That's right. Uh, okay, so it is 9.58 in the morning. We are heading into the uh, 10 a.m. 10 a.m. news bulletin. Um, but is there any last recommendations on what people should be reading before they head off to the yeah, weekend? Yeah, read this op-ed by Wong Chin Huat. It's entitled, Can PN Shadow Cabinet Work? You can find it in Malaysia Kini. I found it really interesting because he goes through eight pertinent questions on the matter. So do read it. It's an interesting read. And another interesting read is in the uh, Guardian, which is where you find that if there was a nuclear apocalypse, Australia and New Zealand are your best bets. Malaysia is not even on that list. Okay. <laughs> well, given how far away they are, the other end of the world, Iceland's I'm not the surprised. other good place to go. <laughs> All right. Uh, stay tuned. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin. And then it's over to Enterprise. Uh, BFM 89.9. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.